0: Hi, I see Alex is here, the guest. Hi. Hi, uh, hi, Alex, guest of honor. Um, And I will get started. Uh, Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RSVRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Alexander Clarkson, a lecturer for German and European Studies at King's College London. Thank you very much for joining me today, Alex. Thanks very much. All right. It's great to have you on the podcast. Now, as anyone listening in uh, knows, uh, we're doing this live on Twitter spaces. And we're happy to take a few questions at the end. So if you have a question, uh, please send it in a DM. Now, as is often the case uh, or has been the case since Russia launched its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, on February 24th, we're going to talk about the war in Ukraine, Russia's war on Ukraine, and about the situation in Russia a little bit. Now, I'd, I'd plan to discuss what, what appears to be a shift of focus for Russia in the war uh, after the failure of what was widely believed to have been President Vladimir Putin's expectation that he could subjugate Ukraine in a matter of days, um, either by asking the government or forcing it to give in to uh, his demands. Now, Russian forces, uh, you know, that, that obviously hasn't happened. Uh, Russian forces have now retreated from areas around Kiev, and Russia says it's going to focus on the Donbass, the southeastern part of Ukraine. Uh, though it seems like uh, Moscow may also try to take or to hold uh, land beyond the Donbass, in particular uh, between that, that area and Crimea, the Black Sea Peninsula that it seized in 2014, uh, which seems like a long time ago now, given what's happening now. Uh, so, so that was going to be the main topic in terms of the war. But over the weekend, evidence of what appear to be atrocities by Russian forces in towns around Kiev has emerged after their departure, uh, the departure of those troops. The, the dead bodies of numerous civilians in the streets of Bucha uh, and survivors' accounts of killings there and in Irpin and elsewhere, people just being being shot in the street by the Russian troops, according to these eyewitnesses, several of whom have spoken to RFRL reporters on the ground uh, in the past couple of days. So this invasion, the, the unprovoked war, I mean, there's been so much death and destruction, uh, Mariupol, Kharkiv, Sumi, Izum, and, and many more cities and towns—it's uh, all just—it's uh, all just unbelievable. And now there are these new allegations of atrocities in Bucha and in other places. Um, it, you know, and, and people are saying, you know, look, uh, this is just what we're seeing. There's a lot that we're <coughs> not seeing. So it's just staggering. Uh, Alex, I guess what I, what I want to ask you uh, is whether you think this evidence that, that emerged over the weekend is going to change anything in terms of the West's um, approach to this war and to Russia, sanctions, uh, Russian energy exports uh, for, for the United States and for Europe in particular. Is this some kind of a turning point?
1: I, I think the turning point already <laughs> happened in a kind of macro level. So if you consider the extent to which the EU states, the UK, United States and Japan were willing to take action against Russia before 23, 24 February and where they are now, I mean, there, there's been a huge shift in terms of a willingness to um, directly call out Russia, take certain measures to uh, not just in the short term or medium term to um, contain Russian power, but also to actually contain Russia's ability to develop technologically. I think everything that's happened afterwards, and I think beyond just the 23-24 February, it was also the question of whether Ukraine whether Ukraine could survive militarily or strategically. And that, that question probably answered in the first 10 days of the campaign, where it became increasingly clear that, yes, Ukraine is a state. Yes, Ukraine has not, it doesn't just have a resilient society, but has a powerful state, has a pretty strong army, uh, an increasingly strong army, and the ability and the will to resist, despite some strategic errors made very early in the campaign um, in the south on, on the Crimean border. So in terms of long-term trajectory, a trajectory of, of, of greater confrontation and, and tension between Russia, the, U, the US, and UK, uh, I think that question has been largely answered. The question we have now with what's happened over the weekend is the speed with which the EU takes certain actions. Uh, there is a lot of criticism at the moment of Germany, and uh, particularly of the German stance in relation to gas imports, uh, which I substantially agree with that Germany should be moving, the German government uh, should be moving faster, it should be decoupling itself out of sheer self-interest, and I'll go into that in a minute, cool. out of sheer self-interest, should be de- decoupling itself much more quickly from um, Russian gas, and particularly gas, and, and, and also oil imports. But there are also problems. I mean, Germany has 40% Uh, gas import dependency from Russia, that can be wound down over the medium to long term. I think over the next two to three to four years, two to three years, uh, beyond whatever the trajectory of the conflict itself we're going to see, there is going to be a gradual reduction of German gas dependency towards Russia, probably even starting from October. Not just because of the conflict in and of itself, but if you actually read between the lines in substantial parts of German industry and and, and German business world, that is highly resistant to putting an immediate embargo now, there's been a loss of trust in Russia as, as a trading partner. So there's a kind of medium-term to long-term trajectory. There's a greater conf- uh, growing confrontation. The problem is, is, that ha- is this would this decisively shift developments in the battle space and in Russian policy now? That I doubt, unless Germany goes for an immediate gas embargo. The risks with that are, of course, substantially, substantial in terms of the German economy and substantial in terms of the uh, German political stability if there are problems in the German economy. On the other hand, uh, there is a problem in terms of uh, German government attitudes about the extent to which they can control this trajectory. Uh, if you look at German debates today, today, particularly for major German corporations like like BISF, uh, Siemens and other corporate figures, as well as the German government, there still is this kind of ongoing assumption that Germany is in control of the trajectory of events, that somehow it's Germany's choice, to, uh, the timing of an embargo, the timing of the gas cutoff would be down to what Germany chooses to do. And I think there is, whereas in parts of the energy ministry, parts of the environment ministry under Robert Habeck, maybe parts of the finance ministry um, uh, under Martin Lindner, there's there's a growing, under Lindner, there's a growing awareness that maybe Germany is not in control of events and has to prepare for a sudden shift. I don't think that's necessarily penetrated widely enough in the German policy space for German policymakers to really understand that how much things are on a knife edge and how much developments, both in terms of Say a strong, you know, a Russian leadership trying to pursue this war against Ukraine, trying to pressure the EU, but also maybe down the line, I think there are substantial stability risks when it comes to Russia's internal state cohesion. I mean, a lot of what we're seeing now is, is 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 a sort of sort of cry, this this deep anger and frustration in parts of the Russian state elite, but I think it also sort of reveals an underlying stre- streak of anxiety within the Russian state elite about Russia's internal stability. And so there's also issues to do with the cohesion of the Russian state, possible civil conflict in Russia, maybe two, three, four years down the line. I'm not saying that's inevitable. But it's, it's more likely now than it maybe was before February 23. That also might lead to severe disruptions of gas imports. And I I'm think the Germans need to start preparing substantially for situations that are out of control when it comes to energy imports and the impact on the German economy.
0: Okay, I mean, that's fascinating in terms of, uh, you're saying, I guess, uh, the, the kind of the way the West reacts to this, it's not, there's factors, you know, in Russia um, that may be unexpected, um, and and Germany and, and other Western countries can't really control what, what's going to happen with that, so they they can make their decisions, but then uh, these things can be affected by, by the situation in Russia itself.
1: I mean, a lot of things that we assumed about the Russian state elite, the Russian government, um, you know, the strength of the Russian military. I mean, think a lot of mistakes were made. There were also a severe underestimation of the strength and resilience of the Ukrainian military and the strength and resilience of the Ukrainian state, which actually, if you looked at it closer over the last five, six, seven, eight years, even before Maidan, there tended to be this kind of failed state paradigm in relation to Ukraine, which was just off, just wrong. I mean, I, I, I hate to put it that bluntly, but a lot of it just simply mirror image discourses from Moscow that had a kind of neo-colonial air to them, rather than reflecting and engaging substantially with the realities of Ukrainian society and the Ukrainian military after 2017 in and of itself. But that, that, that's maybe an issue for analysts to look at um, in, in future. But there are also a set of assumptions still ongoing about Russia as a great power, Russia as a cohesive state as the strength of the Putin regime, which we need to start looking at a little bit more skeptically. <laughs> In terms of the stability of Putin's power structure, the ability of, you know, what if, you know, this is a what if scenario, but what if you have an organization army secret scenario, a situation where Russia does not make significant progress or even loses more ground in Ukraine, and you begin to have substantial parts of the military, intelligence, nationalist movements and apparatus looking around, looking for somebody to blame? Are they going to blame the Ukrainians, the West? Probably. Are they going to blame internal enemies or people within the state who are their rivals? Probably as well. Now, The regime could, well, uh, keep this all under control, or it may fail to do so. And that opens up a whole set of stability risks as we look down the line. That's one possible scenario. But I think because of the extent to which what we've seen has had such a destabilizing effect, we have to start gaming out possible different scenarios, not just about Russian aggression to Ukraine, but about stability risks in terms of Russia itself. And if you have substantial stability risks in terms of Russia itself, Russia is no longer a reliable energy supplier or supplier of anything to EU markets. EU governments have to adapt to that.
0: And that's one of you know Russia's kind of constant claims throughout you know the past thirty years, I guess, is look we're a we're a reliable supplier of gas. Um, so uh, I guess that's something you know that's that's now coming uh, even more into question. And it should have been. Know, que- it,
1: sh- it, sh- it Sorry, it should have been questioned in two thousand eight already. To right. be honest, yeah, you
0: know. yeah, absolutely. And um, you note. I uh, just. I would just note. Uh, you mentioned. You know, will, uh, will people look abroad uh, for, for scapegoats or, or to blame? Um, and that's certainly happening, uh, including with this Bucha, uh, the, the, you know, apparent atrocities in Bucha. Uh, the government is already uh, claiming it's a fake, not giving any, any evidence to support that, but of course pointing the finger uh, at the West and at Ukraine and then you mentioned, you know, will will they also uh, blame people inside Russia? And that, of course, is also happening. Um, some uh, comments or a tweet, or I guess a comment by Medvedev on the on social media, where he's saying, you know, we need to be able to tell the face of a traitor from from someone who's not a traitor. Uh, so that's the kind of frightening thing that I think is is happening in terms of the blame. But but at one point, does it then? You know, do, does it become a blame game inside, I guess, the Russian elite? And second question uh, I wanted to ask is, I guess, related to that, related to the situation in Russia. Now, obviously, Putin has unleashed an attack that has killed a great many innocent civilians, uh, and there are new horrors every day in Ukraine, every hour. But I'm going to ask whether these le- recent developments, uh, this new evidence of atrocities, might have any effect on levels of support among Russians for the war, uh, among the general population uh, and also within the elite. Now, maybe this question is being asked by me too late uh, because we do have, uh, I think, various uh, high-level Russian officials and ministries uh, denying that this took place, uh, claiming it was a provocation. But uh, will will what comes out of this, out of Bucha and the other towns, would it widen any rifts uh, in Russia or just prompt a closer
1: circling of the wagons? I think that the actual, um, this. I mean, anybody who's dealt with Russia's impact on on Syria, even Libya, if you look at the Tripoli siege um, in in 2020, um, 2020, 2020, 2020, or any other external conflicts, we have this horrific um, atrocity committed by the Malian army now in Mura. Uh, just last week, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, in which Wagner mercenaries were involved. I mean, any of these scenarios where we see, you know, the Russian military culture play itself off, the Kirill Shamiev is, 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 is hopefully his dissertation comes out because he's doing really great work on that. Um, you know, if you look at the kind of underlying dynamics of Russian, you know, the Russian military culture, what we're going to see is is we're going to see it's it, there is a systematic element to it, but it's also just this kind of tolerance for indiscipline and and um, uh, you know, war crimes. That these are just things that happen. This is sort of normal. And This is the extent to which this has also been normalized within the Russian and policy elite. So, in terms of the atrocities themselves, we're going to see us. I, I would, I'm, I would be surprised if there's not a circling of the wagons. If they, all the same re- uh, reflexes of denialism, pretending it's going away, maybe even historical amnesia, longer term after a, a, uh, you know Ukraine survives or a resolution of this conflict, I would be surprised about it. I think what splits the regime isn't the atrocities; it's the fact that there. The reason why they're being uncovered. And the reason why they're being uncovered is, frankly, because Russia lost the war in the north of Ukraine. Like, they lost. They were pummeled. I mean, I think there's a lot of analysis that's still among military analysts of Russia that's still sort of very ambiguous and ambival- ambivalent. Oh, can they? But, I mean, let's be clear the Russians had to retreat, they were defeated. That doesn't mean that Ukraine, so what we're seeing is a shift away from possibly a kind of a more existential, a fundamentally existential war about the existence of Ukraine as a state society towards a more, maybe something more like Serbia versus Croatia in the 1992, which is a battle about the territorial configuration of the Ukrainian state, which is equally brutal and horrific and nasty. But if anything is going to, I suspect, if anything is going to divide Russia and lead different elements of the regime to turn on itself, is if they just keep, well, I mean, I don't see how they turn this around, to be honest, in terms of some grand victory narrative that they can construct. What's going to break or, or, or fracture the regime is when people turn around and start asking, you know, who is responsible for this for the fact that we're losing, or for the fact that we lost this, at least this specific battle so badly, and you can already see this. A lot of the analysis of Russian opposition or Russian civil society focuses on non-military or non-militarized aspects of Russian civil society. But there's an aspect of Russian civil society that's deeply in, intertwined with military society, Russian military society. And if you look at that, like you already have people like Kots or you know Stashin or you know, all these guys, you know, I bet you put me quietly, are all sort of pointing fingers and saying, well, if I'd done X, Y, and Z, it would have been better. It must be these generals. It must be these officers who in the state has betrayed us. If anything fractures the elite, it's going to be a blame game as to why they screwed this up so badly. Because nobody's going to take blame for themselves. Everybody's going to look out for a rival faction in the regime. Look at the Karivovtsy and the kind of um, resentments they're building. That's when I go back to this issue about the stability risks rep- Russia represents. To me, it represents two stability risks. One in terms of an aggressive... Um, expansionist power be pursuing this kind of quasi-genocidal attack on Ukraine. That's, of course, a risk that Russia, that the EU now, right now in the short term, has to contain, handle, and support Ukraine to survive. But medium to long term, this goes on like this, you know, th- that the real source of division that will fracture this ability of the regime to circle the wagons is this question of who is to blame as to this failure, and also the extent to which that challenges this fundamental self-image of Russia as a great power, which is such a core element of, of Russian regime. You even see it with foreign policy elites, Russian regime or elite identity. The fact that, you know, rather than questioning you know, whether this this is even worth it in terms of the societal and economic cost, whether um, maybe a different course, Sweden with nukes maybe, where people care more about kindergartens and, and, and the condition of the roads, that might be a better societal course. Rather, you'll have a kind of elite playing game that spreads into the wider elements of the militarized aspects of society, searching for someone who is at fault for this. And maybe Russia or maybe Russian state, maybe Russian elites, hopefully they have the means to manage their way through that without civil conflict, but this is a risk now that we have to take into account in terms of not just Russia as a risk to everyone else, but the Russian elite, Russian militarized aspects of society as a risk to Russian stability itself. So I think that comes back to the broader gas issue, that this is not a stable society. This is not a stable state. And we need to start planning for a potential future where we cannot rely on any form of stable trade or any stable form of stable political relationship with the society that itself is so, so potentially brittle and so at risk. Of, of tearing itself apart over, over what's a pointless war really.
0: Yeah. I mean, that I, uh, I have to say, I agree with you on the idea that, uh, at least if I understood correctly, the the idea that, you know, if there's going to be a split, it's going to come not from, oh, look what we've done, but from, you know, look how we, we've failed in our, in yeah, our mission or exactly. we failed in the, uh, and you see, I mean, you see the circling of the wagons with, with, uh, Claiming that that this uh, bucha, what happened there, is is a fake, Um, and you know, I think people may want to to believe that, Um, you know, uh, but uh, another thing that that comes to mind is sort of, uh, you know, you mentioned they they, they've lost in the north, Um, but the the and the expectations raised, you know, by Putin himself and by others have been so, so great. I mean, the, 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 you know, in in the weeks before the war, Russia was calling for, you know, basically the withdrawal of NATO from Eastern Europe, you know, so those, and, and it was clear that they were aiming for the, um, you know, to have a loyal government in power in Ukraine at least. Uh, So, you know, those goals obviously, um, you know, may never have been realistic, um, but, as as sort of the abilities or, or what's realistic to achieve seems to shrink, it just seems like you know how, how is there not going to be uh, a search a search for uh, people to blame that that may eventually go you know in, inside Russia.
1: I mean that's why I think Dmitry Medvedev is turning this stuff out because like he's not exactly flavor of the month for many of these militarized you know parts of civil society or, 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 you know, the military elites, I mean, they're going to look for targets and they're, they're going to, if, 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 if hopefully, you know, maybe there's a different path, hopefully, but if this happens, it, it starts, you know, targeting different elements, the weakest elements of the regime, and then it spread, the rot spreads inward. And, and again, this isn't unprecedented historically, like whenever you see, like it's easier for a society and an elite to live with atrocities if you think you're a winner right? But never mind the atrocities, the real th- threat, you know, is, and, and, and it's difficult to see a narrative that comes out of this, where Russia doesn't look at least seriously impaired as a great power, or it, this whole, or this great power, power image is increasingly dissonant, or has increasing cognitive dissonance with the actual reality of a state that doesn't seem to be able to wield military power effectively. And I, I don't know whether the Russian state elite, right, even down to people, you know, we've encountered, we've worked with, proved perfectly moderate, even parts of the liberal, I, I find it fascinating how even some Russian liberals or parts of the opposition movement struggle with the idea that Russia might not be this great power that they thought it was. Whether this psychological blow is is in itself something that is a stability risk.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess uh, you know part of it will depend on on what does happen in the war. You know, obviously still yeah. uh, happening, and you know, there's talk of. Uh, you know will, will putin and russia claim claim victory w- of some kind with uh control over the donbass or part of the donbass probably uh, possibly more than that um, if they do achieve that um so you know there may still be still be i guess outcomes i mean it's hard really to talk about all this yeah. be because of the the death and destruction but yeah. you know, there may still be outcomes that they can they can claim as as a, as a victory and then just go on with it confrontation with the West but then I guess it's also the, another question is you know how uh, what happens to the economy and, and how yeah. how badly does that affect the situation Agreed. Okay. all right uh, well we're running out of time I will have to wrap it up shortly but uh, I want to take a few questions if there are any so um, I'm not sure anyone has requested uh, okay um uh, There's a question from uh, Mariam uh, has written in a DM, so I'm going to ask. I'm going to pose this question to you, Alex: of what possible impacts the ongoing conflict and all the sanctions imposed on Russia may have on the post-Soviet countries, in other words, the other former Soviet republics.
1: I, I'm always very careful to say I'm I'm an EU guy, and the reason I work on Russia Ukraine as so Libya Algeria Turkey other states other spaces is, is because of diaspora dynamics and the militarization of the EU's border space. So I'm always very careful with Central Asia because that's slightly outside of outside of the EU's wider sort of neighborhood and remit. I mean, there's a lot of very smart people like Eric Marat and and um, others who who are looking at this. Uh, I think that. If I was the EU, I would certainly be I mean, they already have high level de- delegations and diplomats now uh, meeting regularly with people on the central on the Kazakh, Kazakhstan side and others, because the question comes up that if Russia is no longer able to sustain or maintain stability in Central Asia, the question is, who else does? Is it China? Do the EU and the U.S. come back and in, in 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 these kinds of spaces? And there's going to be enormous economic knock-on effects. Maybe in one area which I do on work on is particularly in terms of, of migration. Like a lot of these Central Asian states uh, live substantially off remittances from migrants uh, working in Moscow. So Tajik, uh, Kyrgyz, and other migrants working in Moscow. Like if those remittance flows go down and you don't really, and many of these Central Asian migrants even return, that removes of a substantial pillar of economic development and growth in the region. And that, that also, again, opens up stability risks in these spaces. Does that mean other States? And that's where I think the EU needs to be. The EU needs to be just generally more proactive with these issues in terms of coming in, working with other major geopolitical partners to see what needs to be done to ensure that st- instability in Russia does not have now con effects on other States that then cause further problems down the line.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, what you, what you mentioned, the, the effects on on countries uh, in central asia that have uh depend a lot on on workers who work in russia that that's already happening um you know some are returning uh we've had because we do a lot of reporting on central asia and you know one of the things their families that were sorry families in which okay the people working in russia were sending money home um to central asia and now it's the other way around. The, the, the family back Central Asia has to help those um, who are in Russia um, because they're because they're out of work. So that, that's one you know specific effect. And I think in terms of politics, you know, there's also sort of a big question. You can see some, uh, particularly Central Asian countries. I think uh, kind of distancing themselves, uh, you know, from Russia. To, you had some comments from Kazakhstan. Uh, the other day, um, so these countries are sort of, you know, what is what is what is in it for them to support uh, a country that is that is doing this? Uh, and then there's also the factor of, well, you know, some Russians, at least uh, some people in the Russian elite and the Russian government, have designs on parts of some of those countries as well. Yeah. So, you know, obviously.
1: So I, I do think it opens up, and I, it was very interesting that recently there have been several EU delegations, low-level, but there have been contacts now opening up to uh, Kazakhstan after the the, the mess of, of, of early January, um, and, and kind of the role Russia played, and, and I know the Tokayev kind of asked them in, but, you know, they had the means to do that, so, um, you know, suddenly Russia doesn't have these, where are these VDV airborne troops going to show up to, to do run that kind of operation again? I know you still have the troops in Tajikistan, but you really have to wonder also just in terms of how they seem to, seem to have cracked under pressure, whether they can pull off the same operation. So I think that this is actually something that requires, particularly opens up questions about how far Kazakhstan can act as a regional stability actor and, and how far the EU needs to come in and 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 support it, particularly if Russia is no longer able to do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a good point about the, uh, the January events. And I think, you know, Russia ended up looking, at least in some people's eyes, you know, looking Pretty good there, um, and now that may have all, all changed uh, from uh, as a result of, of the of the war in Ukraine. Um, okay, uh, if anyone does, anyone else have any questions? You can request uh, to be a speaker if you have a question. just give a couple more, uh, a more time. Hi, can I ask a question? Uh, yes, please go ahead.
1: Yeah, I'm just wondering about the position of Turkey. I mean, um, prompted there by this vacuum in, in Central Asia, there's Turkey's been trying to do a sort of Turkic severe um, that direction, but also if Ukraine ends up in a, a sort of eternal entry process with the EU, Turkey can also say, "Well, I know, I know this very well." So, how well is Turkey negotiating this uh, position of trying to be friendly across uh, the Black Sea and flex its muscles? This this new situation, where previously Turkey was simply seen by the EU, for example, as being uh, the, uh, the the border guard that we don't like very much. Uh, well, I mean, Turkey's role in the region goes back to Turgut Özal. I mean, it goes back to, to to the fall of the USSR, and, and you already have. Um, you know, Turkey trying to play a senior role in the Central Asia and, and in the Caucasus region. You know, this is, this is a, there's a 30-year continuity. I think one of the issues that that's maybe for a different discussion, but one of the issues that's underestimated is the extent to which a lot of what the Erdogan government does actually reflects long-term continuities in Turkish foreign policy. Sort of cloaked in a, in a, in a rhetoric that is confrontational at times and incredibly irritating, particularly to, to EU states. but. It's a lot of what he's doing is just sort of repackaged and just more aggressive variant of 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 Turkish foreign policy traditions, and it's the same goes for the region. I mean, it's worth considering that, you know, the the, the Turkey actually has, if Ukraine gets through this, Turkey has a, a lot of positives come for Turkey. You know, Russian power is maybe a little bit more is weakened, so the, uh, Turkey's position in the Black Sea is stronger. Turkey can play a greater, uh, more influential role in the South Caucasus. It can sort of show up in Central Asia again, and it, it can sort of pitch itself to the EU and the U.S. as, okay, we, we didn't do everything you wanted, but hey, we sold a couple of drones to Ukrainians and we're positive partners. Also, the Turkish construction industry is formidable. Like as Dimitra Bechev Beche points out, it'll be EU money paying for Ukrainian reconstruction, but a lot of Turkish construction companies will be actually doing the work. But also because they're, what's really not understood particularly well, I think, outside of Turkey and Ukraine, is that the extent there's extraordinary extensive business relationships between Ukrainian and Turkish business interests that would smooth the path. A lot of parts of the Turkish elite are actually invested in, in, in Ukrainian survival here. The one problem for the Turks isn't necessarily in terms of uh, an advantageous, or potentially advantageous foreign policy position. The problem for them is their own internal cohesion. I mean, uh, you know, inflation is heading to hyperinflation. I mean, it's suppressed. There's a lot of currency issues. And there's a lot of difficulties in terms of um, Economic growth. The Turkish business community is under enormous pressure. There are all kinds of difficult decisions that have now been made in relation to Syria and, and other states, and we can probably see a stabilization in Turkish position in Syria over time. And, and there's also this domestic political situation: of the AKP's fraying um, internal cohesion, which, 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 you know, it would weaken Turkey's ability to take advantage of these opportunities. However, if say it's just a hypothetical, if there was a JHP-led government, a JHPE government, under say, Imamoglu or somebody like that. Um, I don't think they would do much different. right? I, don't, I think they would take, operate in the same way. They might be nice to the EU and actually at the very least try to negotiate a, a updated version of the customs, agree, uh, uh, customs union with the EU. And it and they would, they would, they would be much more positive and less aggressive rhetoric. But in terms of concrete actions, I don't necessarily think any gov- Turkish government would operate differently. And it would certainly try to take advantage of these opportunities.
0: Okay, thanks for that, Alex. Um, uh, any any other uh, questions out there? Okay, I'll just give it a few more minutes or so. Hey,
1: um, I hope you can hear me.
0: Yes, I, we can.
1: Um, I have a question. I'm, I'm calling from from Germany, and of course, um, we do have this discussion right now in Germany. If there has to be an embargo on oil and gas, and my question would be, as we are discussing it right now, what would be the actual consequences if we stopped importing gas and oil today? What what would happen to to Russia? Is that um, something? Um, yeah. What are the scenarios? Um, I, I so for, first of all, you know. Um, Russia still has other gas markets outside the EU, right? So Turkey would still be buying Russian gas. There are these sort of preliminary sort of gas export pipelines to, 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 to China. It would find other markets. However, its income stream would be severely hampered. The problem is, is that even if we shut down gas exports now, gas imports now in Germany, it would be a delayed effect of at least a few months before there would be a serious financial pinch. Um, It would have a palpable effect, and we have a palpable effect, though, on on two levels. First of all, it would accelerate this process that I think is already happening in terms of Germany reorienting itself to to other markets. It would be much more traumatic for Germany, and it would cause a lot of internal political difficulties, but it it, it would happen. So there's a long-term market impact for Russia. So say there's a peaceful resolution down the line, and then Germany restarts its gas imports from Russia, it'll still be at a much lower key. After such an event than, than before. So, there's also a long term impact that even if Germany would reopen its markets with Russia, it would not be necessarily in the long term exporting the same volume. That has knock on effects in terms of the Putin regime itself, which somebody like Nick Trickett maybe might be better positioned to discuss about the extent to which this is a regime that it relies heavily on buying off regional elites. It relies on a certain level of income flows. There's this, there's this idea that this regime is sort of invincible and everything we throw at it will somehow. Absorbed, and I think that's also incredibly dubious. I mean, it's a re- it's a regime that needs cash flow and a certain level of cash flow to buy people off. And the less cash flow it has available to buy different regional elites off and different elements of the re- regime off, and then again, it comes back to the internal stability r- risk. The more it and you begin to have competition for whatever resources are left, and that heightens internal rivalries within the regime. Putin may be able to hold that together for a certain period of time, but a severe reduction of cash flow within the regime of capital and patronage to be distributed by the state, you know, it just sharpens competition. It sharpens rivalries. It sharpens anger and frustration among whoever is getting less or not getting what their share is. Imagine a situation where the Russian state has to choose between still pumping cash towards Kadyrov and pumping cash to other sort of neuralgic institutions or or regions within the state. And you can already see how that can, can unleash a kind of competitive dynamic. So certainly, I think this idea that the Russian regime could, could just put regime could just shrug this off, I think, is, is is incredibly dubious. But it has a delayed effect. It would take time to have effect, and you would the assumption would be that it would generate enough nervousness within the regime to get it talking. My argument is is that for, at the very least, Germany should massively accelerate this shift anyway, out of Germany's self interest. But beyond that, Germany needs to and the EU needs to start appreciating the fact that Russia is no longer and probably never really was a reliable energy supplier, and that. You know, whether or not Putin regime wants to shut off the energy supply, there's all kinds of internal stability risks within Russia and its relationships with the outside world, which means that that supply is just not reliable and could be cut off anytime. and we need to sort of develop alternative uh, strategies for handling that.
0: Okay, thanks for that, Alex. Um, now there's a question uh, from a listener named Lena. Uh, the question is, and I'll take this one. Um, how many more crimes does Russia need to uh, to carry out uh, to stop us? Uh, I guess that we would stop hedging and and drop the word "alleged" from discussions like this. Um, so I, I guess I'd say uh, you know w- these uh, these horrific. Uh, things that have happened in Bucha and elsewhere—you um, know—apparently people shot in the street. Um, you know, these are all just coming out over the weekend, um, and you know, we, we're gathering. Our reporters are gathering information about it. They've spoken to to people on the ground, people whose you know, some of whose relatives uh, were killed. Um, you know, but it's but it's uh, it's you know, new information. Um, and you know I guess I come from the United States and also from a journalism background uh, in both of those milieus. I guess you know it's kind of innocent until proven guilty um, uh, and, and you need to, to really have, have the facts before you can state um, things state things as, as facts. So um, that's, that's what I'd say about, about that uh, the use of the word alleged. Okay. Any any more uh, questions or questioners? All right. Just give it a few more seconds. I mean, hopefully, just go to go on about that. Uh, you know, hopefully, all this there'll be a reckoning. You know, there's been, no, there's been no reckoning you know, for a decade. Hopefully there'll be a reckoning um, about everything that's that's happened and, and is still to happen. Um, that's the best we can hope for. Um, yeah. All right, so we are running out of time. We'll have to wrap it up. Um, Alex, uh, thanks very much for joining me. Uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Super, thanks very much. It was very interesting. All right. Um, I'll be back again next Monday. And please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.